Do me a favor, raise your hand if you've ever been abused by church. Keep, keep them up, raise them higher. Boy, um, pretty dumb idea of God's, right? This thing called church. Look at how abusive it is. And, you know, I, I, was, I read an email this morning from a friend of mine in Texas who moved away from Antioch, and they're really struggling finding a church. And I just got angry reading about the church situations he'd gone to. Um, you know, most recently last week at Easter, a church that had to borrow an extra 375000 to build their megaplex shopping mall and used Easter to say, Jesus canceled our debts, so let's have you, the congregation, help us, the church, the corporate church, cancel our debts this Easter. You know, I, I mean... It's not what people need to hear. <laughs> it's not where they're at. You know, it's a form of, of, of spiritual abuse. And it made me angry just reading about this friend I care about. And, and then just sitting here this morning thinking about it, that, that we get burned by church so often and so quickly. And, and I'm supposed to be sp- speaking on give your life away. And we're going to do give your life away for the next four weeks. And it's different areas of your life because God wants sovereignty over your whole life, and so today is time and energy. And the thing that I'm, I, I would be uh, supposed to do would be to be very persuasive and twist your arm into getting involved in serving in the ways that, that the hierarchy of the church would want you to serve because it would build this church up and make everything um, that much smoother, that much better. And it starts with our vision and our agenda as the end, and you become the means, rather than starting with God's agenda um, as the end, and you become the opportunity that we are able to encourage and affirm and equip and come alongside of. And, and I just I felt myself dealing with that tension this morning, and I didn't like it. Um, it happens to me regularly. You know, a couple weeks ago I told you that we're really hurting for money. So then two weeks ago we have a speaker from you. He's a Ugandan pastor, if you remember. And he's finishing up grad school over at Multnomah and money's really tough for him. So he has to leave his family every weekend and go speak for compassion and do those kinds of things. So I'm sitting there during the last song and I'm like, you know, the right thing to do is to take a love offering for this guy. <laughs> and, and my first thought was, oh, absolutely not. I can't do that. That'll actually like affect giving and it'll like take siphon money off we can't do that like our church isn't isn't in a good spot for that and the minute I had that thought I was like okay I guess we have to do a love offering now because that's just ridiculous that fear would dictate decisions or control in our own self-interest would would keep us from doing what's right does that make sense so we 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 did the love offering and you guys because I actually didn't put any money in but you guys <laughs> gave, gave $2,100 to Alex, okay? Um, I mean, just, you know, Matt comes up this morning and says, hey, uh, let's, let's send a team to Nicaragua into the summer. You want to know what my first thought is? No, we can't do that, like... Because then those people are going to write letters to their friends and family that go to our church. And then money is going to get siphoned off 
from giving and, and it's too hard already and that'll create headaches and stress and give me ulcers and we can't do that. You know, and the, and the minute that thought comes to me, you know what, it's, um, sure, Matt, let's go change Nicaragua. Um, God is big enough and he's always taking care of us. Let's, let's do it. There's people that, it's not willy-nilly, it's a team he's had and individuals he's had that have been working and laboring for months, building this relationship and crafting this opportunity so that people in this church can go from Bend down there and, and be used by God and even have an experience that would radically alter your life. Um, what could be cooler, right? Um, our friends at Icon City, Icon City is an event that's kind of, to bring the city together to talk about poverty, to talk about um, injustices, to talk about opportunities to serve the needy and the vulnerable in our community. You want to know what my first thought is sometimes? When, when studly guys come into town and are going to do big things with, with big vision, you want to know what my first thought is sometimes? Oh, no. It might siphon people off or energy off um, or, or just become confusing or distracting. We... We, we got to, like, put a wall up and keep people from knowing about that. It'll, it'll just make life more difficult. And you want to know um, what we have to do when we have thoughts and feelings like that? Is we have to go the opposite way and say, it's about giving it away. This church, these opportunities, you people, our gifts, our t- it's all about giving it away and, and saying, God, what would you have us do um, and it might not always be Antioch, and that's okay, right? So the minute I have that thought, it's like, you know what I have to do? I have to say these guys are studly guys. They are in town with big vision and big dreams, and they have put their family and their own finances and their own security on the line to try and serve others. We can bless that. Um, you know, it's, it's just where we got to go. So this morning, I was falling into... Um, crappy, abusive pastor mode um, that was seeing an opportunity to, to take a sermon and use it to magnify Antioch and make my life easier. And so I was over there. It's a really funny story. So I was over there rewriting the sermon. There it is. Kip, it's really short. Don't worry about time. And uh, my buddy, Eric Tolfson, who's doing special music after the sermon, comes up, says, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm in the middle of rewriting the sermon. And he laughs, and, and he says, yeah, I, I did the same thing last night with the special music. You know, I was sitting there last night just rewriting it, and then this morning kind of rewriting it. So it's all rewritten um, <laughs> straight through special music. It's kind of funny and ironic. But, <clears throat> but we got to understand something, and, and i got to understand this too, is that when we're talking about giving your life away, it's, it's with the, the basic fundamental recognition that, that it's not ours. It's God's. God is sovereign over our life. So I marked a couple passages. I'd like to read them. We don't have them on the screen because uh, obviously I didn't have them last night. But um, let me just read from Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5, and it's a little bit of a chunk, so bear with me. It says this, Go on, go on up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, 
Still they are swearing falsely. I mean, that means they're hypocritical. We don't know anything about that with religion, do we? Okay? It's nothing new. Oh, Lord, do, do not your eyes look for truth? You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. I thought these are only the poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. So these are the ignorant. So I can't expect something more from them but to do stupid, silly, hypocritical, ignorant things. And then Jeremiah says, So I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. But with one accord, they too had broken off the yoke and torn off the bonds. Therefore a lion from the forest will attack them, a wolf from the desert will ravage them. They with one accord had broken off the yoke and torn off the bonds. What was the yoke? What were the bonds? They were the things that were supposed to be there so that these leaders would be using their influence and their power for what purpose? The purpose that that put the bonds and the yoke there to begin with. That God has a sovereign plan and he has a sovereign calling and he has a will for leaders and for his people and he's going to steer this thing and they had come out from underneath that. I remember when I was learning to drive, I once drove this, uh, um, somebody, somebody else's like old 70-something station wagon with wood panel sides um, and it had like a really, I still remember this, like a really thin steering wheel. It was really uncomfortable. You know what I mean? It was like, it wasn't right. Um, but you grab that steering wheel and it had so much play in it. Do you know what I mean by play? That this has always been my definition for what it means to have play in the steering wheel. And play in the steering wheel is you, you go like this and nothing changes. Like, okay, you know, I'm still going to So you have to actually anticipate like four seconds ahead if you're going to want to turn. You know, like I'm starting to drift. You know, like I better, I better turn the whole thing. Like. Okay, now we're slowly coming back around. It's, it, it doesn't respond to your control. What you want it to do and what you act on in terms of your will, it doesn't do. And, and Jeremiah, he's talking about how God's people and even the leaders can come out from underneath that and not be responsive anymore. Here's another verse in Acts. This is Paul in Acts 26, he's now kind of recounting, he's brought before King Agrippa and he's recounting his story, his conversion story. Okay? And it says this in chapter 26 of Acts, verse 14. We all fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic. So you remember the story, Saul, who's been taken and dragging Christians in and arresting them and persecuting them and all this other stuff. Saul is on his way to Damascus and he's going to round up even more Christians. He's getting really good at it. And he's on his way traveling and it's the, it's the ancient Near, uh, Near East. It's Israel. It's probably sandy and dry and everything else. And he's on his way and, and Christ kind of stops the caravan and is going to have a confrontation. Um, what's that? Uh, intervention. He's going to have an intervention with, with Saul and his guys. 
And he says to Saul in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's one of the most crazy phrase compositions in all of scripture, I think. Can you see what's going on there? Um, Saul, why do you persecute me? Okay, Saul is persecuting. He's doing an action. Okay, what's the logical thing to say next? Ouch. <laughs> it hurts. It's uncomfortable. Don't do that. I don't like it. It's, it's chapping my hide. It's, it's annoying to me. It's this action you're doing is bothering me. That's the logical sequence of, of that word persecute, that active verb, right? I mean, come on now, right? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you understand that Saul can do whatever the heck he wants? It isn't going to thwart God's will. He's pushing against God, why do you persecute me? But God's prickly. He's prickly and he's saying, that hurts, doesn't it? Saul, when you're pushing against me, against my will, that hurts you, doesn't it? It's hard, isn't it? It's not really working for you, isn't it? It's this fascinating thing. Saul is off track, but it doesn't affect what God's plans are. And so he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me, which is against my plans. It's not what I'm looking for. You're dishonoring me. You're doing the opposite of what I want. Why are you doing this? Um, and it's hard for you to do that. It's, it's prickly. Goads are sticks that are sharpened on the end, and they used to use them in the ancient Near East to, to you know, just like it says, they would poke animals in the back, in, in the, the hind, because they have thick, tough skin, hides, and and they would be poked, and it would be a way of driving things where you want them to go. And, and so it's hard to kick against the goads. God will go where God wants to go, and you're going to get kind of pushed with him whether you want it or not. You can resist. You can go against it, but he's going to still goad you there. Does that make sense? So Saul, uh, it continues, and Saul asks, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen, what you have seen of me, and what I will show you. That's, uh, that's actually the, the first verse um, that, that I ever got when I got saved. Um, about a month in, was sitting somewhere and plopped open my Bible, and that's, that's the first verse I ever felt like God spoke to me. And it's a, you got to understand, like, I don't care who you are. God doesn't care who you are. He will use who you were and who you are for his purposes. Um, I had come from living a life that was so God-dishonoring um, when I was 22, and here I'm looking at this verse. How in the world can God ever use me, like do anything of me? I had no idea what to do anymore with my life. And, and these words all of a sudden are, I'm going to point you as a witness of what you've seen. 
what your testimony was, who you used to be, the things you used to do, even when it was bad, Saul, Ken, whoever, um, I, that stuff I'm going to redeem. I don't just redeem the good parts of you, I redeem the whole of you. And then when I redeem it, those experiences, the knowledge, the wisdom, the, the, the pain, all of what you know is able to be leveraged and I'll use it as you go talk to people, serve people, witness to people, um, I, I'm going to use that. So you're going to be a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I'm not done with you yet. I'm going to take all that, I'm going to add to it, and then I'm going to bundle it up, and guess what? I'm going to put you to work, and it's going to be amazing. And so you think that you, you're like a, a victim of abuse, but God can take that and redeem it and use you. You think that you've been um, a drug addict, a addicted to gambling, you've been abusive in your marriage or in other relationships, you've whatever, you've thrown your life away, guess what? God will redeem that. He can redeem that. And when he does redeem that, that becomes a part of your story. It becomes a part of what God uses. You're going to go back to the same kind of people that you once knew, and you're going to understand them better than anyone else, right? You're going to understand what it feels like. You're going to understand what's in their heads. You're going to understand how to talk to them. What's amazing to me is me standing here in Bend, Oregon, talking to you, most of you are part of what I experienced in my 20s, American consumerism and hedonism and struggling with, man, everything that I seem to want is not what God wants for me, so how do I run from God? And this was my, my story, and God takes that and says, you know what, um, I'm going to use that. So here I am in Bend, Oregon, talking to a lot of people that that I understand really well. I mean, I get it. I understand it. I know what it feels like. I know what it tastes like. I also know how empty it leaves you. I know all that stuff. But the point is, is God has a will and God is sovereign. He's sovereign over your life and you can push against that, but at some point, he's going to have a talk with you. He's going to have an intervention. He's going to say, I've got a yoke got reins, I've got ropes, I've got things that I want you to be hitched up to as part of my work. And he goes on to say of Paul, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, which is the whole thing that's happening with him right there in that conversion, right? Your story becomes your story. So let's turn to Ephesians real quick, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2.10, maybe we can wrap this up in this verse and, and make sense of it, but it's this verse that you've probably heard before, and it's coming right on the backside of, of an intervention conversion verse. You're, you're saved by faith through grace. This isn't of your own doing. God does it. God comes. He redeems you. He rescues you. And then in verse 10, it says this, for we are, we are God's workmanship. We're his clay. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And here's where we go all wrong. Leaders see you as a lump of clay that they can shape. 
they have the pulpit, they have power, they have the authority, they have influence, and, and they can set the agenda to shape you to serve certain ends. And we can baptize those ends, call them religious, retire $375,000 worth of debt, and, and spiritualize it. Okay, we can, we can shape clay, or we see people as clay that God is shaping. If we're shaping it, we shape it and fashion it to what ends? To our own ends. So you being created for good works becomes what? You can work for me. And I know exactly where I can use you. I can use you in the nursery. And I could use your money. And I could use your... Okay, it, it becomes about the works you're created for, we subtly turn into those works, I'm going to define those for you. And now I begin to abuse you. And you want to know how you're going to burn out on church? Here, here's the real quick way of, of knowing. Do you get your marching orders from the pastor on Sunday? Or in your prayer time every single morning? Do you get your marching orders? Do the ends for you, the, the things that you're working toward ultimately, the big goals, do you get those from the pastor on Sunday? Or do you get them in your prayer time with God as you're listening? God, who, who have you made me to be? Where do you want me to go today, this week, with these relationships, these opportunities? Um, you see, it says, if we go on in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that God, he gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers. That they would be able to use the people to build pyramids and empires for themselves. Churches that would last hundreds of years with their names on them. He, he gave some to be pastors and teachers. Now, let, let, let me be, I'm being sarcastic, and I don't mean to say that Antioch is perfect and we're different. I don't mean to, to, to juxtapose it that way, okay? Um, some of you have been abused in Antioch, will be abused in Antioch, will be disappointed in Antioch, and we will make mistakes all the time. Okay, so I don't mean to make us immune. I just want to at least be humble enough and, and honest enough and transparent enough to recognize the shortcomings. Does that make sense? Okay, so he gave some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So you've been given gifts and you've been given a calling that is going to work for God's purposes to nurture and build up his church over millenniums, millennia, millennia over a long period of time. <laughs> you are going to play a part in building that up. Who defines the ends? God does. He, he, before he even made you, he knew the works he had for you. What's my, what's my job? My job isn't to be above you and on top of you. It's to be alongside you, helping affirm and encourage and, and nurture and grow and give opportunity and to, to allow and to take hands off and to set you free and to motivate and inspire you to pursue that calling, to give your life away. To not run from God, but to 
to hitch up with God. And, and it might mean that some of you join the nursery. It might mean that some of you quit the nursery or kids' ministries. It might mean that some of you help out at Antioch with setup or leading a small group. It might mean that some of you need to quit helping out with setup or leading a small group or quit Antioch altogether because you need to be somewhere else right now. Does that make sense? God's plans are bigger than, than our little social club that we've got going on. Now, if, if what we're doing here is underneath and submit, submitting itself to the bigger plans, then this is all a part of God's plan. Okay? So the church in Antioch, we kind of took our name from this, but remember what happened there? They had Paul and Barnabas that weren't originally from Antioch. They came and, and they were leading there. And that church goes to prayer one night. God, what would you have us do? What is your will? You're sovereign. All this stuff is yours. It's not ours. They go to prayer one night and, and God says, I want your senior pastor and your senior associate pastor to leave. And I'm going to use them as missionaries. And they say, okay. They don't say, well, that's bad for giving. Uh, we might lose 20% of our, our church congregation. Um, they don't do any yeah buts. They just say, okay. And then the next day they set aside Paul and Barnabas, their senior pastor, senior associate pastor, and they send them out. And so when we started Antioch, the phrase we used a lot was we want to be willing to take the best of what God gives us and give it away. We know we're in God's will if we're willing to take the best of what God gives us instead of holding on to it and making it about us. We, we say, it's yours, God. You gave it to us in the first place. If you want to use it, we'll send it on. It's, it's yours. We've got to We've got to live radically enough to, to, to operate within that. Um, it's, it's a crazy deal. You want to know why you should help out at Antioch? I, can, you know, I could try and give you a, a story of, of duty and, and try to control you and use your sense of obligation as, as a mechanism for trying to get you to serve here. You want to know why you should serve here? It's, real, it's a lot easier and a lot more fun. When I used to lead a college group, I, I used to take the guys aside. So here's these 20-something single guys, take them aside. Now I tell them this. I say, look, you guys trying to be cool, so you want to act like church and this college group and all that's not really cool. You want to come but stay just enough on the outside that you can kind of be like, yeah, I'm not one of those people. I'm cool. I'm removed from it, right? So, so this is the attitude you want to have. I said, do you guys understand that the best thing you could do for yourselves, okay, the, the thing that helps you the most is to make this college group super killer because then there's going to be a lot of, of women that come. And, and the cooler it is, the more um, different levels of good-looking women are going to be here and, and more options you're going to have and the more things we're going to be able to do that gives you time with whoever's in this group and the more that people are going to value it and serve, which builds relationships. If you guys knew what was good for you, you're all telling me you want a good, godly, like, Christian woman. Well, build the system and the community that's going to give you that opportunity to have what you want. Look, if you knew what was good for you, you would help me build this college group. Okay, why should you serve Antioch? It's the same reason. Uh, it's what's ultimately best for you. Um, 
for your family, for your kids, for the friends that you bring, for you feeling like you're not just coming on Sunday, but you actually get the benefit of relationship. I saw someone sent me a study this week that said, if you are in a, a social group, like a community, like a small group, that meets at least once a week, that on a happiness factor, they grade that out as if you were making 100000 more a year. The happiness quotient in your life from being involved, significantly involved in relationships is the same as if you were making 100 grand more a year. So if you want to give yourself a raise, go talk to Brandon and get in a small group. Um, the reason we should all contribute to Antioch is if we all pour in and make this thing the coolest thing it can be, and it's got energy and it's fun, that means that we give, but we also get more. It's, it's a good experience for us because there's different levels of church, right? There's some churches or towns or places where you're like, man, I just can't find a church. But then you find a fit and you're like, man, I love it. I love the people. My kids love it. I, this is fun. There's meaningful things. I'm growing. It's, I'm meeting people. All this stuff's happening. Well, we're in charge of that. Nothing is stopping us from being the healthiest, funnest, coolest church we can be. Other than collectively choosing to make it that. You realize how simple that is? The problem is, is that we're Americans. Somebody else is going to do it. The guy to my left is going to do it. The guy to my right is going to do it. It's like when you get an email and it's got 20 people on the to list. Bum, 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 bum. You know, hey, I really need somebody to whatever. You just delete. You know, nobody's looking at me in particular, so I can just hide on this one. Just delete. You know, so if you're really smart, what you do is you, you, you type. This, I've learned this. I'm smart. You, you type up the email, and then you send it to one person, and then change the name copy, paste, send it to another. You just send 20 emails, you get a lot further than just putting all the emails at the top. But we do. We, we look to the left and we look to the right and just shrug our shoulders and say somebody else is going to do it. And, and the reality is you need to look in the mirror and say, you know what, I have the ability to make my church what I've always wanted in church. I've been abused at other churches. I've been, been abused at Antioch. But I have the ability to help change that thing, to help steer that thing. I, 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 gotta, I can get them, as long as it doesn't affect what God wants for me, what his work is for me, I can help create a better reality here for me and for others. That's why you should get involved in Antioch. Um, not some kind of manipulation thing. Uh, here's the deal. Write this down if you want. Here's the question I've got. Can you explain your conversion in terms of time and energy? Can you explain your conversion when you became a Christian, when you really decided to live for Christ? Can you give that testimony, tell that story in terms of how it changed your time and energy? See, here's the real interesting thing. I've heard a million testimonies in my life, and they all go like this. I never knew such joy. I never knew such peace. I never knew such happiness. I never knew such hope. I never knew such fun of being around other people that were also excited. Um, I never knew, and I could just substitute out chocolate chip cookies and it, it would give you the same answer. I never knew such joy. Um, I never knew such hope looking forward to chocolate chip cookies. And, and the fellowship when we're all eating chocolate chip cookies, so amazing. Um, and we get together and we swap recipes. I can seriously give, give you that testimony without Christ being involved, but, but with chocolate chip cookies. 
if you've really been converted, if, if, if you've really given over control of your life and, and let God get back on the steering wheel, show me how it's, it's different in terms of your time and energy. He uh, says to Paul here, okay, so this is the plan now, Paul. I'm going to rescue you out of the hands of these people, and then I'm going to turn right around, and I'm going to send you back as a servant and as a witness. I've got plans for you. This is the work I've got for you. Paul is talking to Agrippa, and he's giving his testimony in terms of his time and energy. I mean, we, we're just so, I, you know, I this up. It's, you know, someone was joking with me the other day, like, um, you know, you grab your iPod with your iPad and go have your eye solitude, you know, and um, it, we're so wrapped up in this that we don't understand that you really know the essence of, of somebody's walk of obedience with the Lord, not in terms of their gut and their, their palate and their experiences, but in terms of whether they really serve and wash feet and lay their life before Christ and and make hard decisions with their time that show that they're following. That's where the testimony is. So the question is, can you, you yourself, cash out your conversion, your intervention, the conversation God had with you in terms of the difference it's made in your time and energy? Now, I don't mean to say that you guys all need to, would have need to drop out of whatever you were doing and, and become missionaries but it changes the way you work at the job you're at or why you work or your willingness to step away if God ever called you to step away or how you spend time with your family or how you choose to say no to things that would be super fun guy stuff or whatever, but you just don't have time for it because you can't do that and do what God has made you for all at the same time. Here's the interesting thing. I, I used to live near Disneyland when I was in grad school and Disneyland's a really interesting place. You go to it and the people that are visiting it uh, never leave happy. <laughs> the kids are crying, everybody's grumpy, and the family's fighting with each other on the way out. It's, it's really, it's called the Disneyland Depression, you know. I, I've never heard of, it's, it's, I just made that up. Disneyland Depression. Um, you want to know why? For two reasons. You didn't do everything you wanted to do. There was more there than you could do in one day which makes you feel like you must have missed out on something, okay? And in trying to devour all the pleasure that you could devour, you ran around so frantically that you didn't make the most of your time in terms of the things that really matter, like having a good time with your friends and family, stopping long enough to smell the roses, like actually making it a, an enjoyable experience altogether. Does that make sense? That is our lives in America, we're, the Disneyland depression is what we're all yoked with. We, 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 we think we have to do all these things because they're all somehow open to us. So we have to taste them all. It's like my wife at a buffet. I find like one thing I like and I eat a whole lot of it. Tamara, she makes herself sick. She, you know, because at a buffet, not a buffet, but like a good old fashioned potluck. I mean, all those different kinds of food were not meant to be digested together, <laughs> right? Got the Asian chicken salad and then the jello this and then the, somebody brings, there's always the pizza person and the Kentucky fried chicken person, but that it doesn't go together, right? And Tamara, she can't help it, like she loves the sample, she loves adventure and she's just, she eats a little bit of everything and it makes her sick. That, that's, 
I mean, not to use my wife in a bad analogy, but that's the way Americans are with, with life, right? And it's the, sorry, the Disneyland syndrome. And, and we do so much of it that we don't get involved in small groups. Why? Oh, man, every week I, I dread it. Man, I'm just so tired. I don't want to go to a small group this week, or I don't want to like really invest in these people. Or I don't. We keep ourselves so full with our time and our energy that we don't even do the really important things. Someone, one of my friends, wrote on their Facebook this week, which is where you find all good theology. The uh, they wrote a Charles Schultz quote, and it went something like, um, "Sometimes I I lay awake in bed at night and and wonder where I went wrong." And then a little voice says to me, this is going to take longer than one night, you know. <laughs> I think the sad thing is, is there's a lot of us wondering where we went wrong. Because I think conversion for us became something we just added to the life we already had and the dreams we already had and the direction we were already going. And it, nothing's really working and we're not really getting that sense that we're doing what we were made to do. I think there's a lot of us out there. And the simple message this morning is give your life away. Lay it down. Submit. God has got a plan. And no matter where you go, you're going to be either helping it or pushing against it. And it's prickly when you push against it. And it doesn't matter how much time you've lost. It doesn't matter how many things you've done that you feel are unredeemable. You can decide today, you can decide this week, you can start taking your orders in the morning in your prayer time and say, God, what do you have for me? My time is yours, my energy is yours, my decisions are yours, my big plans for my life are yours. I will serve you. I'm going to give my life away. I'm going to lay it down. You're sovereign over my life. Nehemiah did that. You want to know what your ministry is? There's a saying that I think is really helpful. Your misery is your ministry. The thing that really bugs you it's probably the thing God made you to jump into the middle of and fix, change, make better. Nehemiah did that, man. He was just so distraught over Jerusalem, the city, that this, this guy gets the king to appoint him to go rebuild the wall. And he was so laser beamed on that, nothing distracted him, that all these churches I've ever known preach these leadership series on Nehemiah because, you know, he was so focused and didn't let anything distract him. And then I'm like... It's really interesting because there's parts of Nehemiah that I don't know how you preach because it's a little odd. And I'm like, I don't think Nehemiah is an expert in leadership. I think he's an expert in what it looks like just to make one decision that changes all future decisions. One decision that puts you on a different course, but it's the course that God's driving you on and that he's using you in. So I I think the book of Nehemiah is not 12 weeks to leadership like Nehemiah. It's like, give your life away, your time and your energy, your sovereignty, like Nehemiah. When we started the church, we, uh, I, used, I used to say this phrase, we used to say this phrase that we don't want to be this institution, we want to be a movement. We, we don't want to be a blanket over the top of fires. You know what happens when you do that? It ruins the blanket. No, I'm just kidding. It, it smothers the fire. When, when I try to define for you what your work is so that it'll make our little institution better, I, I put and insert us over the top of you, and it smothers the fire, especially for guys. I mean, I'll just be honest. Guys hate church. Why? It's stifling. 
there's no big dreams, no mountains to climb, no, no, nobody to kill. Um, and and we, we just make it so sanitized. We just put this blanket over it and it smothers it. And I read to you Ephesians 2.10 or, or chapter 4. Pastors were meant to see a fire and to do this with the blanket. And what does that do? It just it fans it. I mean, it creates a wildfire. It fans it in, into flame. And, and we don't want to be an institution. We want to be a movement that's messy and, and it's hard and it gives ulcers, you know, to the leaders and things like that. Um, we want that because ultimately that's where we're going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God working through us to accomplish his ends. And we don't want anything but that. So the saying was, we want to find a bunch of people that are still idealistic enough to believe that you can change the world. Because if you can't change the world, then God wouldn't tell us to try. Okay, so we want to find enough people who are still crazy enough to go to Nicaragua on a moment's notice or raise money or give even in a down economy or give of their time and energy or say no to stuff that their friends are doing or make church cool, who would want to do that? And we want to find people that are still idealistic enough to leverage themselves to try and change the world. Because if it was impossible to change the world, God wouldn't have told us to try. Father, we just commit this church to you if you're really running it, there's going to be a lot of scary things that we're not going to understand that are going to really test our faith. But let it never become about us. Let us never get territorial. Let us never make it our own. It's your church. It belongs to you. Christ is the head. And we're servants and witnesses along with Paul. We're people that you're going to take all of who we were and package it up with all we're going to become, and you're going to somehow use that in ways we would have never imagined, never dreamed, or never thought possible. And I just pray that for, for this group of people, for us, that you would make it manifest and you would make it clear to us how you would use our time and our energy, that we would lose our life for your sake, and in, do, in so doing, just get it back again but be able to walk with you instead of against you from this point on. And Father, we just pray for this. Let people in this church have conversions. Let them have interventions. Let them have conversations with you that are the point in which they're saved and ransomed and redeemed and changed. And everything from this point on will be different in terms of time and energy, not just experience, because they're really yours. We pray that in Christ's name.